would have to switch Imam Juma. He's not going to be here next week, but the following week. Good morning. I, I'm so pleased to see everybody on a holiday weekend. We do have a little change in the schedule. Zev's going to explain that to you uh, for the next two weeks. Okay. Um, Imam Juma had to be out of town for when we had originally hoped to have him next Sunday, June 4th. Uh, he will instead be presenting here on June 11th. So next week you get Guy Benzev on, um, uh, what is it, um, St. Francis, St. Uh, 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 um, Bernard of Clairvaux and Bono, those three great saints. Uh, conversion, co crusade, and coexistence. Okay. Let's open in prayer, please. Father God, you call us to be your church. So often we run to that title, that place, as a place of comfort, and we expect the blessing of peace. And yet, we know that all things work for good, and even in, within the church, there are difficult times, difficult topics that we struggle with. As we continue to look at can we coexist, we again realize how difficult at times other religions are for us to accept and to deal with. In your mercy, continue to bless our efforts to understand your will as we work through the issues that are difficult for this world, for this church, and for your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning. How's the sound? Pretty good? Okay. Well, uh, it's really exciting for me to be here today. This is a topic that we're going to study dear and very precious to my heart, and I've been thinking about it for 46 years. That doesn't mean anything that I say today that would be true because I've been thinking about it for 46 years, but I just want you to know this is not an academic topic for me. And speaking of academics, we're honored again today to have a world-class intellect. I saw him walk in, I said, who's that cool guy? And then uh, Dan Moretta said, uh, we got Dr. Lloyd here today, right? <laughs> so glad to finally meet you. I've heard a lot about you and nice to see you. Okay, um, there's two ways to look at this topic today and one of them is listed here, God's wholeness or salvation for those who never heard and may never hear of Jesus. Okay, that's one way of looking at it. Uh, the other way of looking at it is on the board, uh, the wideness of God's agape love. Now, last night, or last week, Zev and I were making some jokes about breaking glass. Do you all remember that? And do you, re do you understand the metaphor? I don't know, it, maybe it's a teacher's metaphor. Do you understand what it means to break glass in somebody's head? It's a metaphorical thing. What do you think it means? Uh, break a paradigm. Who said this? Oh, the, a, what's a paradigm? What he says. <laughs> <laughs> 
Come on in. We're uh... ah, it's a theory. It's a construct. It's a map. It's the way you look at the world. Yeah, some people even think like worldview and paradigms are roughly equivalent, right? It's just your perspective on things. So when you hear something that is contrary to your worldview, to the degree that it is contrary, to that degree most human beings feel you mean threatened, a little uncomfortable. And then you get deeper, deeper, deeper into it. If the, if the conflict, if the paradigm that's being shoved into you is different than your paradigm to such a degree that you start really feeling psychic angst, pain, well then, ten, people then tend to do what? React, react. you could get mad. Uh, angry, all kinds of reactions that we have when worldviews conflict. And oh boy, in the media today, we just have so many illustrations of that. By the way, does anybody ever watch Bob Costa on MSNBC? He's now my little favorite guru because he uses the term worldview every time he gets on TV. I'm like, wow, Bob! Yes, he will say, well, their worldview, he's talking about the Saudis' worldview, Donald Trump's worldview, everybody has a worldview. Good, we're all realizing something. What? I didn't hear that. What are we realizing? That we all have a Yes! We all have a paradigm. We all have a worldview. And so then, of course, what's very interesting about modern media today is, and I'm not making any political statements whatsoever, I'm just observation. What seems to be happening is, is that if you have a paradigm that's you know, coherent and a point of view, it has now become customary to come over here and create like what? A show, right? And this is not wrong. It's America. You have a right to power out your paradigm. So we have this news station that paradise powers out their way of looking at the world, this one that does their way of looking at the world, this paradigm over here. It's not evil, it's not, not bad. This is great, vigorous democracy, debate and everything. The only problem is what happens. What seems to be happening. What do experts say is happening? Do we meticulously say, hey, tonight I'm gonna watch, now to make sure there's no bias, give me a station. Fox, tonight I'm gonna watch Fox and see what they have to say. And then tomorrow night I'm gonna CNN. CNN. <laughs> Wednesday I'm going over to MSNBC. MSNBC. Rachel Maddow, wow. <laughs> okay, so thing is, do people do that? Do people tend to do that? No, you tend to, this is what experts call confirmation bias, right? Dr. Lloyd. <laughs> Confirmation bias. You, you, all, you look for what you already believe. You look, what, you look for what you believe and, and you find it because why? It's more comfortable. I mean, believe it or not, some people really, it creates psychic pain for them to watch. Give me, give me. It creates psychic pain for some people to watch. Fox News. <laughs> I didn't say that. And it goes all the way. So then you said, ah, I don't want to, I don't listen to that. Fine. We all have that problem. So when we talk about breaking glass, what we mean is 
when somebody introduces a new worldview or a perspective or a paradigm or even takes an existing worldview and says, look, we're going to look at this a little bit differently. You have to be careful that you don't just overreact at the beginning and say, I'm not going to listen to this because it doesn't confirm or comport with what I originally believed. That may happen to some of you today, and I want to make sure you understand on the front page how I frame this up. Could you look on your handout, please? And if you don't have one, you probably need to have one. Uh, what is a hypothesis? You notice down here uh, in the middle of the page, I say hypothesis one. Uh, what is a technical definition of a hypothesis? Hypothesis. Hypothesis. Scientist. Yes. An educated guess. An educated guess. It's not like just wild. Based on I on hypotheses. What is a hypothesis? What's a thesis? A thesis? It's a proposition, it's a point of view, it's something you throw out and say, I want you to consider this to be true. A hypothesis is a hypothesis, it's throwing something out and saying, I say this is true. Then what? It's testable. It's testable, you have to test it, you have to confirm it, you have to, and whatever your hypothesis is, it will require a whole range of different ways of testing. Okay, this is a hypothesis I'm giving you today. I'm not telling you dogmatically this is absolutely God's truth. I want you to think about it. It's a hypothesis. And here are the two hypotheses on the topic that we're talking about. What about those people who never heard and may never hear of Jesus? And I'm going to show you some statistics today that are going to blow your mind about our world today on that topic. So hypothesis one is, this is called the narrow application of Jesus as the only Savior. The narrow application. You've heard this before. All people who lived prior to Jesus that never heard of him, all people that have lived subsequent to Jesus that never heard of him, unfortunately and sadly what? Are lost because the Bible says, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And so therefore they couldn't come to the Father through Jesus because they never heard of him. Therefore, sadly, unfortunately, tragically, they're lost. A lot of people believe this. Absolutely. Probably the fundamental perspective that drives the worldwide missionary point of view. Again, I'm not here to argue about it. I just want you to understand it. You hear it? You understand what that view is? Okay, here's hypothesis two. Uh, the wider application of Jesus is the only Savior. Notice I keep saying Jesus is the only Savior. I want you to hear that because this is what this viewpoint entails. And I'm going to explain it to you. All right, ready? Since all people are saved by faith, it may be possibly true that God will apply the work of Christ on the cross to those who through no fault of their own never heard of Jesus, but who did have faith to the extent that it was possible for them to have. That's statement number one. I just want to take it sweet and easy, like a beautiful golf swing. Right? Okay, if these people responded in faith to what they did not know about God via, which I'm going to explain to you today, natural revelation, the interior witness of the law and conscience, and the persuading work of the Holy Spirit, it may be possible for 
God in God's grace will apply the work of Christ to them even though in this life they never hear or never know the name Jesus. Zev, I didn't hear any glass cracking, none. No glass. Do you hear it? Do you see I don't ask you to believe it. Do you, do you see it? Do you hear it? Okay, now notice, qualifications. If you would believe hypotheses too, it is not an excuse to abandon evangelism or missions. No, no way. Why not? Well, sure there's value in... There's still value in knowing Christ. Yeah, I mean, if Christ is ultimate reality, then of course you would want all people to know ultimate reality as high as you could know ultimate reality. So you would want to give them Jesus, and also they'd have the blessed relief of knowing what? I'm saved by grace and not by my own works, and that is a big load off your back. Right? So right there... I mean, I don't know about you. I mean, if it's possible for people to be saved without hearing the gospel, but they're carrying this big load of bricks on their back, I hope I make it, I hope I make it. Wouldn't it be a relief if a missionary came and said, well, guess what? The master already did it for you, and you will make it if you believe in him. That would be a big relief, granted. Even if they were going to go to heaven anyways, it would still be a big relief in this life to know this, right? Okay, so by no means am I suggesting abandoning missions. Also, notice this, number two. It does not reject the truth claim of John 14, 6 that Jesus is the exclusive way to God. Oh, baby, this is the one that is the big topic today. When Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but by me, then that seems to imply what? I mean, just on the face of it. That's it. it. There's one way and only one way, and if you don't go that way, then you're not going to find God. Okay, so I'm not denying that. Okay, and I want you to understand that. I believe that. I'm simply going to show you a way of looking at it that makes the reality of that viewpoint wider in its application than some people have concluded in the past. Okay, so do we know what we're doing here before I start explaining? It's a hypothesis, which means what? Well, it should be testable in some way. Uh, this isn't science, so it's not going to be scientifically tested, but it'll be tested by other ways that we test qualitative propositions. Um, it's a hypothesis, and I want you to understand it, and then you'll go from there. Okay. Does anybody want to ask any quick questions before we start? Yes. Oh, great. Thank you. His question is, in the Gospel of John that I quoted, the contention is not between people who have never heard of Jesus. It's about people that have heard about him, understood his message, at least partially, and then said, no. Okay, yeah, that's a different issue. This topic, what we're talking about is for those who what? Never heard. It's going to blow your mind. Maybe you already know this, but it's going to blow your mind when you realize what that means. Anybody else have a question before we get going? Yes, sir. (laughs) 
a great question. Here's his question. Like, okay, so here's this guy. Um, uh, we won't even name a religion because then we'll get into embroiled all this stuff. But let's say he's one of those Gentiles that Paul talks about in Romans 2, which I was going to quote anyways in sight. Romans 2, 14 and 15. When the Gentiles, when the nations who do not have the law, do instinctively the things of the law, they demonstrate that the work of the law has been engraved on their hearts. Their thoughts alternately accusing or defending them. So what does that tell you that God has done for human beings? God has installed, and I, I was going to teach you this, but I'll just teach it backwards. Okay, here's the Jewish Bible. Biblia Hebraica. What's the essence in the heart of the Jewish Bible? Well, the Torah is, just means instruction and law. But to instruction. But what's the heart of the Torah then? The heart of it. The core of it. What did the master say it was? The essence. The quiddity. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. Upon these all the law and the prophets hold, all 613 commandments. So this is what God did. When the Gentiles who do not have the law, they didn't have this. Because that didn't come along in time-space history until 1445 when Moses came. And we'll talk about how long humans have lived today, and we'll not agree, but that's okay. Somehow, humans, from the beginning of time, God has done what? They didn't, he didn't give a, them a book. God did what? Took the essence of the Torah, the heart of the Torah, which is what? Love. And stamped it on human hearts. It's, it's hardwired into human beings. That's part of what it means to be made in the image of God is to have this capacity. So all humans had this at the beginning. When the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. Well, your guy that you're talking about, he's a good guy, he's working along, he's doing well, he's doing well, but eventually he's gonna say, what about his life? If he's honest. About his efforts. I didn't love, I don't love God with all my heart, soul, and mind, and strength. I don't love my neighbors, I love myself. He might not even think of it in those categories, but he will realize what, or she will realize what. Something about my performance falling is falling short. I mean, it's a universal trait among humans, except for world-class narcissists then they have no problems. But almost all human beings will say that. So that guy that you're talking about, it's not a bad thing for him to hear about the good news because he's laboring under the pretension all of his life, what? That salvation is going to be predicated for him on what? His works and performance, and now he's realizing what? I mean, this reminds me of like my grandmother. She taught me that the first seven years of my life, God gives you a pass. It's called the age of innocence. She said, then at that point, the meter starts running. Every time, every time you do something wicked, a little stitch of thread, she told me. And this is what she literally told me. This is why I have so many problems. <laughs> a little stitch of thread is put into your soul. Every time you do something wrong. And then when that soul gets filled up with thread, you are sent to a place and you have to pick them out with your tongue. She assured me, even though I was only nine, that my soul was well nigh filled with thread. And I had no, very little time. 
So when I turn, this is serious, I'm serious. When I turned 14, I laid in my bed. I didn't know the knowledge of the true gospel, nothing. I laid in my bed and I said, well, I had seven good years. <laughs> and I had seven bad years. Now, I'm not even anymore. I mean, because I just turned 15. Now everything counts. Because I had this predicated notion that it was going to be like, you know, high school. Well, you got a 79. Yeah. All right. I didn't realize what the real deal. So do you understand that it's not that simple? That guy needs to hear. And if, this is what the theologians that believe this theory would say. If this guy, laboring under the pretension, I'm trying to save myself, I know I can't. Here's the good news that somebody else paid for your sins and died for you, and therefore you don't have to carry that load anymore. And they say no, initially and permanently and continuously, then the Bible would say that Actually, they aren't really following after the true and living God anyways because if they had, they would have naturally gone to the gospel as if finding a long-lost father because this theory says that the true and living God's been doing what all along? Teaching them and leading them just like he did the Jews. That's a quick answer. All right, so if I ask you for another question... I'll never get to what I was going to talk about. So. <laughs> but thank you. I mean, it's really great to interact with you. So right now here on this thing, this table, I want you to envision this as time. But we can't call it time anymore because Professor Einstein has taught us what? Time is really what? Space time. Space time. Space and time are what? inextricably woven together. You can't have one without the other. So this is space-time. Okay. So, um, where's God? According to the teachings of the Bible, God is outside of time, not confined within the space of time. That means God can do what Isaiah says. What? From the beginning? Zev, from the beginning? Well, I didn't quote it right. I didn't quote it right. I see the end from the beginning, right? So God is outside of time and sees all things. Okay, so I want you to find Acts 17 now, and we're going to read this little section. We started the course with this. Hey, John. Yes, sir. Let's not forget, though, that God entered space time well, You're cheating, but you'll see over here that I will bring Jesus eventually. Ready? Acts 17, 23. As I passed by and looked at your objects of devotion, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore you ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. God that made the world and all things therein. Okay, where does he start? Okay, so here's the biblical Christian worldview. Time starts with the creation. Sands through an hourglass. <laughs> right. There it is. So God creates time, space, and the cosmos symbolized by this world. Now let's keep going. God that made the world, verse 24, and all things therein, seeing that God 
is Lord of heaven and earth, dwells not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with humans' hands, as though God needed anything, seeing God gives to everything life and breath and all things. So what is he saying here? He's standing at the base of the Parthenon, which I don't know if any of you have had the, the privilege of going to Greece and seeing it. 25 years ago exactly, uh, on my birthday this year, I spent eight hours at the Parthenon. And all I did was walk around it and view it from every angle that you could. It was one of the most awesome things I've ever seen. The Parthenon. Even in its ruination, it's transcendental. So Paul's standing there and he's giving this, and he says, okay, uh, I'm telling you about a God that made time-space. I'm telling you about a God that made everything in the world and gives life to everything. And then his first point is, in light of that, what, it, what is he asserting to these people? Which they should probably have the intellectual capacity to understand. What does he say to them? If that's true, if God created the heavens, the cosmos, everything, then what? You know what? You ought not to think that God needs some little thing that you put together with your hands as glorious and beautiful as it is. That's not the kind of God that we're talking about. He's talking about a God that transcends time and space, okay? So it's, it's a different way. So watch, watch him how he moves now. And has made of one blood all nations of humans to dwell on all of the face of the earth and has determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habit habitation. What is he saying there? That God made this universe and made this world and made human beings out of one blood, he says. It's pretty interesting, one blood. We're all re related, we're all united. <clears throat> You're sitting next to your relative whether you want to or not. So I'm gonna use this prism to, to say uh, this is the human race. So God creates the human race out of one stock and then why did he do that? What does he say? Next verse, look at it. Why did God make humans? That they may do what? Seek after God. And, and I don't know what your translation says. I love the old King James. It uses the term paraventure. If per, they should seek after God and if paraventure they may find him. They may seek after God if happily they may find him. They may seek after God. What does your translation say? That they may what? In the hope. In the hope. Now, let me ask you a question. Now think about this. I don't know when you think the human race started. Anybody want to throw out a candidate? <laughs> Yes, he was. That's what I want to know. When John, is your microphone on? <laughs> no, I think it ran out. No, I think it's on. I think it's on. I think you're on. Yeah, it ran out of power? It ran out of power. say that God made humans for and think this through carefully and I want to know on top of that when do you think humans got started when did God make them what's the academic point of view current academic consensus 50,000 years is when homo sapiens that are like what we are 
not Neanderthals, but Homo sapiens, that's when they first blossomed. If you're a young earth creationist and a young earth uh, person, then you would think that the human race got started about when? About 6,000. So there's your spectrum, there's your gauge, there's your uh, uh, different ways of looking at things. It goes from 50,000 to, to 6,000, and which is right? It's a trick question. Which is right? We argue about this. It doesn't matter for today's presentation. What matters is that humans exist and we're here. And from the time that they have been here, why did God put them here? What does the text say? God did what? He put us here for what reason? To seek after God if, with the hope of actually finding God. So let me ask you a question. This is way before Jesus. I mean, this is a, I don't know what time we are here. Maybe we're at 50,000 years. Maybe we're at 6,000 years. But we're a long way from Jesus, Dustin. And so all these humans back here, what is God doing for them? There's no Torah. There's no law. There's no Moses. There's no Bible. There's no Jesus. How are they going to find God? How are they going to seek after God and find God if God hasn't revealed God to them? So if you would now look with me on the uh, page, uh, the next page, the page two, point number two, what does it say that God does? God reveals. So let me show you how God reveals. And I, I'm sorry, I can't take the time to look up every verse. If you study the document, this will eventually come clear for you, but you can't look them all up today. I'll just have to recite them to you. So let's start with ro number one, Romans through, uh, Romans 1, natural revelation. For the invisible things of God are clearly seen by the things that have been made, even God's eternal power and divine nature. The invisible things of God are clearly seen by the things that have been made, even God's divine power and nature. So a thesis number one that the Bible says is that God has made God's existence warrantable warrantably believable, plausibly believable, simply by what? By the beauty and the power and the existence of creation with what looks to be like design. We realize that today, scientists say, that that's apparent design. We don't have time to resolve this today. But some people look at the design of the universe and say, well, it was apparently designed, but that doesn't mean it really was. And then other people look at it and say, well, you know, it looks designed to me like everything seems to click together. I think there's something here. I can't prove it. It's not provable one way or the other, but I'm going to take that piece of evidence that it looks like it's designed and looks like it has a purpose and say, therefore, then, there must be a designer. It's a scientific proof, but it's an argument. And then we now also know from Romans 2 that Paul does what for the humans? What is he pouring into them? The knowledge of the living God through the things that have been made. By the way, I don't know if you know this, but Orthodox Christians say that the primal way, the primary way, the deepest way that God speaks to human beings is through beauty through the beauty of creation. That's why you will always find people that are hardened atheists and agnostics and don't want anything to do with organized religion. They'll go off in nature and they'll have these experiences that are transcendental. <laughs> because God built it that way for us to in interact with it. So it's, it is a witness. 
But then when we get to Romans 2, are you with me? Romans 2, 14 and 15, Paul says, when the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, they demonstrate that the work of the law has been what? Written on their hearts. Their thoughts, this is their conscience, alternatively either defending or accusing them. So God did two things for human beings inside of them. Inside, he hardwired and put the essence of the Torah into the human being and then he also put in there uh, a function which we would probably not like to have. My shepherd doesn't have one. I have never seen an animal have one. What is it called? A conscience. Yes, God put a conscience in there. So the conscience then does what? It interacts with the engraved Torah and tells you like an umpire Ball! Strike, good throw, good, good, you did well. Really bad, really bad ball. (laughs) This is going on inside the human being all the time. God has made it that way so that the humans are having what? Through creation, through the engraved Torah, they are having what? Do they know God? Do they know God? Go back and read carefully Romans 1. Paul says they did. They knew God. This is a way of knowing God through nature, through the engraved inner law. People did know. And so then Paul says what? When Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the the law, they demonstrate that they are a law unto themselves. So what did human beings begin to do? Way before Jesus, way before the Torah, way before Moses, they began to do what? Live out this revelation. There's a designer. There's a moral code. We have to try. Did they do it perfectly? Do we do it perfectly? No. And in fact, one of these characters that is back here long, long, long before uh, Moses comes along is a fellow named Abraham. He has no Torah. Written. He has nothing. Only thing he has is what? Revelation, the imprinted Torah, and he's opened himself to that sufficiently that then he begins to have what? Yes, he comes to the place where he begins to realize, wow, God is like a living being that I can interact with, and then he steps into this zone that the Bible calls faith. And uh, say uh, uh, amen in proper properly. Amen. Amen. What does it mean? Amen. It mean it doesn't mean something you tack on at the end of the prayer. Genesis 15:6 Abraham said amen to God. What does it mean? It's like when all of this cumulative effort comes or uh, evidence comes building up inside of a human being, they finally get to the place and they say <laughs> Yeah, that's 60s for amen. Uh, right on. I totally believe, I surrender, I I accept your existence. No, I can't prove it, but the accumulated evidence has driven me to the place to say what? It's much more likely in my heart and mind that God exists than not, and so therefore the logical thing to do is what, Jim? And it says, and Abraham believed. He said, amen to God, and God did what? Credited it to him 
as righteousness. So Abraham, living 900 years before the law, wasn't saved by the law. He wasn't saved by being a good person. How was he saved? By faith. Okay, just to reinforce, the word amen, the root aleph mem nun, is the same root as emunah, which means faith, trust, surrender to God. So to say amen to God is to put your whole faith and trust in God. Right. And that's what Abraham did. Now, we talk about Abraham all the time, but we miss this important person in the, in the storyline, and I really want you to see this. There's somebody that's even greater than uh, Abraham. Who's that person? Melchizedek. He comes along, and he is labeled in Genesis 14 as a priest of God Most High. A priest of God Most High. A priest, that means he must have what? Been gone through some sort of... Uh, uh, God, they didn't have seminaries back there, so uh, uh, some, some sort of God-centered training illumination. God opened up his head, and if he's a priest, that must also means he has what? He's got other people. He's got thought. There's a movement of people back here. Who are these people? They're the same people that are like Abraham. What have they done based on the accumulated evidence? They said amen to God. They surrendered. They're just, these are, the Bible just gives you the little tokens of it. There's a whole movement of people that have been saying amen to God from when? From the beginning. And what do you think? You know, you know that God doesn't favor people. I mean, we talk about Jewish as the Jewish people, Abraham, the favored people. You know God doesn't really look at things that way, right? There's no favoritism. God told the Jewish people, you know why I really chose you? In case you ever get proud. You're good storytellers. <laughs> good storytellers, sense of humor, and the other thing he said to him in the Deuteronomy, in the book of Deuteronomy is, the reason I chose you is because you're the least of all the nations, and I'm going to use the least, the most despised, the people that are looked at as scum, I'm going to use them to show my glory to the world. Remember that Jewish people. So it chosen doesn't mean better, more favored. So yes, Abraham said amen, and then God said, okay, I'll enter into a covenant with you because I want to do this other thing with the Jewish people because guess what? These people aren't listening very well, but the ones that did listen before Abraham, what was God doing for them? If they went through the process of the evidence, saw that it's likely that there's a creator from the, the, from the cosmos and the design. Likely there's a creator because there's an interior Torah stamped on our heart and we have all these conscience issues that we gotta deal with. Likely there's a creator and they said amen. What do you think God's gonna do with them if they lived a thousand years before uh, Abraham? Well, you're not Jewish, so you're not getting in. <laughs> He's gonna say what? They got credited by faith with righteousness too. It just so happens that the, door, the Bible's telling the story about the Jewish people, so we've got to go on with Abraham, but that God was doing that for all people. So theoretically, long before Jesus came along, all these people back then, they were what? Some of them. They were experiencing God. They were knowing God. They were entering into a state of grace with God, and God was saving. Hey, what did Paul say? God made this whole system so that human beings would do what? So that they would 
Seek after God and, and find God. Do you think back here, God, these people are seeking after God, they're crying out to God, and God's gonna say what? <clears throat> not time yet. Sorry, you're not Jewish. No. <laughs> so is it safe to say with a Jewish person in the room that Jesus is playing with words like the Jews did with names and it says when you pray in my name you are saying God saves rather than it has to be in just his name I mean, you mean the name Yeshua uh, Yahweh is my savior, praying in the name of Jesus, exactly. that being very particular and pertinent to the Christian yeah. people, right? right? Well, of course, he's, if your question is, now that Jesus has come, what is true for us? Yes, that is a precious truth. But if you're back here living, and this is really personal to me, because did you guys ever see that guy they found up in the Swiss Alps, that, that body, that cadaver? He's called the K-Man. You know why he's called the K-Man? Because his uh, haplogroup is the haplogroup K. Uh, if you study um, uh, megagenetics, uh, he belongs to a particular uh, group uh, that's identifiable, DNA, K group. Uh, guess what? I'm in the K group. That's my relative! <laughs> they found my relative on the mountain in the Swiss Alps. When did they, when, how old was he? He's from 5,000 years ago. That means he lived before Abraham 1,000 years. So my relative is running through the Swiss Alps. Uh, what's he doing? <laughs> he's looking for God. Yeah, he's looking for God. And um, he was heavily tattooed. I would say that he had a lot of... Uh, religiosity about him. That's the conclusion that they've done from studying him. And I think at one point in his life he said, Amen. That doesn't matter if he did or not. I want to believe that. But here's the point. He was a pretty cool dude. He was a cool dude. And he was running around the world with many, many people like him at that time. And God said about those people now, looking backwards, Paul's sermon, he, what did God say? I made you, even though you didn't have the Bible, didn't have Jesus, didn't have, I made you so that you could do what? search after me and find me. And it would be stupid, it would be ridiculous if God set it up and said, that's why I did it, but nobody can find me. So we must now then conclude what? That lots of people back here, or at least some, did what? Found God without the Bible and without Jesus. Does that shatter any glass? Does that sound fair? Does that make your heart sing? Isn't that happy? Oh, no, you could still theoretically say no. I'm not saying, I'm just saying that if you look at the evidence and if you let God have God's way with you according to what the Bible says, you go through this process and it's not proof, but you finally come to the conclusion and you say, yeah, I mean, I mean, most human beings have come to that conclusion, by the way. You know this, right? I mean, 90% of the humans that have lived have gone through this process and said, yeah, there's a God of some sort. In not a response, but sort of in addition to that is we have spent a fair amount of time with the Lakota Sioux, and they experience God. They, 
they worship God, but they worship God. A lot of people think that their religion is earth worship. They worship a creator who is the same creator as we have. And I am 100% convinced after spending a lot of time with them going through their ceremonies, they have known God before Abraham knew God. Okay, so that's a testimony that comports with at least what I want to put out here, that there are people that, by virtue of no fault of their own... They don't worship God the way we do. They see God in all of creation. They do not worship creation. They see creation as their brother, as their sister, as part of them. And it's... All right, now, Dustin, let's, let's take that insight and fuse it with your other question about Jesus and, and bind them together now. We've got all these people that theoretically are experiencing and knowing God. You went to this side of the cross, but the Lakotas or their ancestors lived back here also, somewhere. So the, the truth still works for them. Now, what does Paul say in verse 30? When he's talking about the fact that, you know, God made everything, and then he says, now, the times of this unknowing or this mistaking thinking or the, this belief that God lives in temples and whatnot and you can serve him with human hands, the times of this ignorance or this unknowing, what does he say God did? What does your translation say? Verse 30. I know I'm good looking, but it's in the text. You're all looking at me. What? God overlooked it. Does your text say that? Overlooked it? Does anybody have the King James where it said God winked at it? That's the one I like. God winked at it. Actually, the Greek word is huper orao. Orao, it means to see, to view. Huper, beyond. It's God just did what? All the, all the, all the idol worship, all the nonsense... People were knowing God. They didn't do it perfectly. They tried. Some of them were, you know, not too good, but lots of them did really beautiful jobs, great cultures, ethics, whatever. They were perfect? No. But God said, all of the mistakes that you made, everything from the beginning of time up to this point, God does what? I'm overlooking it. What? What does that mean? I heard a lot of glass breaking in this room. What? You don't have to qualify. Well, now, there's only one way this can really work because we know that the God of justice can't just say, ah, whatever. Let's let it slide for old time's sake. No, Paul says you can't do that. God can't do that. God must remain just while being the justifier of the one that has faith in Jesus, God has to maintain justice in the universe. It can't work. Judge, you can't just, you can't sit up on the bench and say, well, you know what? We're letting that slide today because I'm in a good mood, right? No. Well, if, if you're God, you can, but if God does it, then the whole universe is going to crack because God just did what? Said, there's no justice. Whatever. Whatever. Santa Claus God, grandfather God, ah, everybody's happy, it doesn't matter what you do. No, the God of the Bible, Zev, Leviticus, 
Holiness. You shall be holy for I am holy. But God just happens to be simultaneously agape love. Perfectly balanced. Both light and love. So what does Paul say? God overlooked it. The only way that God can overlook it, find Revelation 13.8. I'll cite it to you if you don't have your Bible. There he talks about the lamb that was crucified, killed from the foundation of the world. Does anybody, is anybody looking at this text? Because you're kind of looking at me like I'm a cult leader. So is anybody looking at it so I can make sure that it says that, right? 13.8, does it not say that Jesus was crucified from the beginning of the world, the foundation of the world? Revelation 13.8? No one has it? Yes? Well, then that means our diagram is wrong. Because you've got to put Jesus back here. Because he got crucified from the foundation of the world. In time, space, history? No. Where did he get crucified? In the mind of God. This has been God's eternal plan. God looks at the whole thing the whole plan this way through the events of Christ. He knew this was going to happen. Isn't that amazing? Amen. 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 And by the way, God also says in Jeremiah 1.5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. God knew you before you existed in time, space, history. This is mind-blowing. So God knew you before you existed in time, space, history, created time, space, history, so God could bring you into existence, into time, space, history, so that why? so that you could know God. And God, of course, knew ahead of time. It wasn't like God made the world, the universe, and then the humans started screwing up, and God said, Oy vey! <laughs> now what? No, no, God knew from the beginning that that was going to happen. So, you know, hey, this just implies what? This, when you start talking about God like this, this is when our brains melt. This is when we need to fall down on our faces. What are we learning about God? God is omniscient. God is omniscient. God knows everything. There's nothing that catches God by surprise. This has all been planned out. So then now in time, space, history, Dustin, yes, at the center of history, God does what? Plants the one and only Savior. And the reason that God, Paul can stand here on this side of the cross and say, oh, by the way, with all your relatives that screwed up and worshipped foreign gods and did all that, God overlooked it. You know why God overlooked it? Because God overlooked their sins because God was looking at them through Christ and what is looking for, not did they uh, were they perfect? Were they totally successful? But looking for one thing in all these humans, one thing. What was he looking for? Amen. Amen. If they said in their heart of hearts, of course there's a God, yes, and I'm trying. By the way, do Christians, are they perfect? So when you're on this side of the cross and you believe in Jesus and then you start living, do we always do everything that's perfect? No, but what we believe is what? <sighs> Good thing that I'm saved. 
by faith in, in what he did and not because I'm a, a perfect person because if that was the other way, I'd be really in bad trouble. Well, listen, God is not a God of favoritism, so this is what I think God did. God overlooked it because God took the work of cross that happened in time-space history and applied it which way? Well, is it backwards to God? No, but it's backwards to us, which is why it's hard to understand. Applied it this way because God knew always that what? That it was going to happen. And God can do that because God is where? God's outside of time. Now, let me ask you a question. And this, we have six minutes. So here's the heart. Stay with me. History of the world population. Birth of Jesus. About as many people living on the earth as there were are in America today. This is up on the website, by the way, if you want to check it out. You can download it. The sources are there on the next page. Look, we hardly grew at all from birth of Jesus to um, 1000 AD. Why not? Human population, very stable all that time. Not very many people on the earth. Oh, my. Look from 1000 to 1950. Look now. 7.5 billion. Look, uh, darling sisters, how old will you be in 2050? 2050. Darling sister, how old will you be in 2050? <laughs> 43. When you're 43, when you're my age, <laughs> that hurt that you laughed that hard. I'm, there's going to be another, look at that. Look at how population is exploding. Now, here's where it gets twisty. Because... Top religion adherents in the world today? Islam, 1.5 billion people. Think about that, 1.5 billion. Add Hinduism, which is now creeping since I did that, closer to a billion. Add all of those up, and you have a, a perspective of the world that is uh, amazing, because what percentage of the world really has a, uh, embraced the Savior at this point. Less than, less than a third. And here's where it gets even more twisty. This is the 1040 window. 10 degrees north of the equator, 40 degrees north of the equator. Down there in the lower column, right on the left-hand side, next to Nigeria, there's a country called Ghana. I've been there. And uh, I've been other places in the 1040 window, and this is what's interesting about this place. Have you heard this construct before, 1040 window? Have you heard about it? Okay. Let me show you something. Two-thirds of the world's population, approximately five billion people, live in that window. Two-thirds. In that window, 95% of those people living in the 1040 window are not reached with Jesus' message. Not reached. What that means is that they have never had enough information about Jesus 
to make an intelligent response to him. Have they actually even maybe even heard the name Jesus? Yes. But had an intelligent presentation, know what Christianity is? Nine. Nothing. So, here's a little picture, by the way. See that staggeringly good-looking person in the middle? <laughs> these people, these people were all West African uh, uh, tribal people. We showed a Jesus movie out in the field one night. A thousand of them came. Most of them had never seen a white boy before. It was the cutest thing in the world. These little uh, African kids, would, I'm sitting in the middle of this field, and they're standing as close to me, as physically close as they could, without touching me. It was the sweetest thing for two hours of a Jesus movie. Just so they could be next to a white creature. They'd never seen one before. It was the coolest thing in the world. The mothers were kind of cruel. They would take their little babies who had never seen a white person and go like this and put them in front of me and the babies would go, ah! <laughs> and that set me free from racial prejudice. I realized finally what it's like. All right, now I'm messing around, but here's my point. These people, those people that I'm showing you the picture of, never heard of Jesus before we showed those movies. Now, here's what God did for all these people. They never heard of Jesus, so what did God do? Counted on natural revelation, engraven Torah law, working through their hearts and minds and consciences to bring them to a place of what? Amen. Then God took, just like he did for Abraham, the work of Christ on the cross, and applied it backwards to Abraham, to Melchizedek, to Adam. Because he said amen, right? Don't you think Father Adam got saved? He put on the garment, didn't he? That the Lord made for him? The skin? That was his way of saying what? Yeah, I need you. So, all those people, the work of Jesus applied backwards. My question to you today is, since the vast majority of people that have lived since Christ never heard of him, and the vast majority of people that are living now have never heard of him, at least in a way that it would be able to intelligently accept him, do you think it could be possible that the God of grace who applied the work of Jesus backwards to all these people and saved them by faith could also work this way and that God could save some little kid in India that lived in 213 A.D.? His name was Bapu. He was riding on an elephant one day. He was like me. He thought he was a hot shot. He slipped, fell. The elephant stepped on him and what? He died, 212 AD, never heard of Jesus, but when he was 15 one night, he looked at the stars, and he looked at creation, and he looked at his heart, and he said what? Amen. And so then he dies, 212 AD, never hears of Jesus. God says, well, you said amen in your heart, so I'm taking the work of Christ and applying it to you. When he gets to heaven, then he realizes what? I never knew God was this loving. Now, it's 1015. 
the stones are right there by the donuts, so you can <laughs> throw them if you wish, or you can ask a few questions. Yes, sir. Okay, now, Dr. Barrett's issue is, okay, you've got a person over here. I, to my chagrin, to my shame, to my mortification, I remember feeling that way about Billy Graham when I was a hippie. I'd, I'd watch him up there, and I'm like, yeah, look at this dude. He's got, like, um, linen suits and really cool dressy clothes on, and look at him. He's, because it, it offended my cultural sensitivities. What happens to those people that get offended by outrageous Christians or Christianity in a way that is not displayed correctly? Or even worse, what happens, as Zev was talking about last week, when you have Jewish people or Islamic people living in our country and they turn on TV and they see some a person up there railing against them? Uh, I remember watching one television preacher. This is exactly how he did it. Not, it breaks my heart to do it. He said, the nations that forget God shall be turned into hell. And the entire congregation leapt to their feet and exploded in applause. I'm like, do you understand what you're applauding for? That You wouldn't want to feel that way. So if some Islamic person or a Jew watches that and they say, that's, that's that? It would be reasonable for them to say what? What about some Jew that gets tortured in a concentration camp by somebody that professes to be a Christian? Um, how are they going to even conceive of believing in this person? So this is why I'm proposing this hypothesis. This is what I think God does. If for no fault of their own, that people are brainwashed, propagandized, injured, traumatized, what God does is what God did for these people. God overlooks it. Why? God overlooks our theological confusion. Why? Because God is love. And so if you've been put into a place where it's almost like existentially impossible for you to believe a certain thing and it happens to be the truth, God is so loving that God will overlook that and take the work of Christ and apply it to you even though you didn't know it and won't know it until when? Until you die. And so I personally believe, and I, I don't ask you to believe this, but this is how I work out my nightmares. The Jewish people that went into the oven singing, I believe with perfect faith that the Messiah shall come. Am I, I'm laying in bed at night and I'm going to say what? That the God of the Bible is going to say, sorry, you didn't call the Messiah by the right name, and so therefore you're lost? No, I think what God's going to do is, you believed in the, in the Messiah to the degree that you could given the fact of what you'd been through, and what God did was take the work of the true Messiah and apply it to them so that they, when they ascended into the smoke, they went to their Messiah. Now, I think that doesn't just happen for Jewish people because God doesn't show favoritism. God does it for who? Some little Islamic kid that has been uh, 
uh, told that you must memorize the Quran and you can't read anything and the only thing he ever knows about Jesus is what he reads in the Quran which says that Jesus did not rise in fact Jesus did not even die so he's told something about Jesus that isn't even true from our point of view do I think that God a little kid 16 years old studying in some uh, 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 place in uh, Mecca or whatever he's, he's studying he's memorizing he's believing with all of his heart he walks out into a street a car hits him and God says to him when he gets up there uh, sorry you didn't call me by the right name now, don't believe this because I say it, but what I think happens is God says, you believe to the extent that you could. I'm going to take the work of the Messiah, apply it to you. You're in because you believed. And why is this important today? I'll tell you why this helps me. Now, I don't know who's going to heaven, and I don't know who's going to hell. And since I started believing this, I don't have to worry about it because all I have to do is one thing. And what's that? I don't have to tell anybody that they're going to hell because I don't know. How would I know who God's going to apply this work of Christ to? Do you know? So all I have to do is love people and share Jesus with them and let the sovereign God of the Bible do the rest. And don't you think that it would help a lot in our relationships with Islam, with Buddhism, with Judaism if our starting point with all these people two thirds of the world's population is sorry whatever you believe is wrong and you're going to hell can you see why we're having difficulties that's not a good starting point it's not even theologically correct, but it's one of the reasons why we have problems in our world. We're telling people they're going to hell. We should be telling them what? And living out joyously God's agape love for them, regardless of what they believe. Yes, sir? I'm not sure this is less offensive to those people than telling them they're going to hell. It's for me to say to a devout Muslim that it's okay as long as you live by faith Jesus will save you. Mm -hmm. I've had a Jewish rabbi. My, my religion yeah. is right. Yeah. It's, it's just going to apply to you too. That, that's not less offensive. It doesn't help me coexist with them. It offends them. Well, you don't have to tell them that. Ah, yes. This is for you to know. Yeah. I, I've had a, I, I had a Jewish rabbi tell me that. Yeah. We need to understand that this is more of a comfort for us than it is a... Yes. A help and... Yes. It changes the paradigm. Because now when I come to you, uh, give me a, a religion. Buddhist. Uh, I come to the Buddhist, I, my starting point no longer is you're lost and going to hell. What's my starting point? How would I know maybe Christ has already applied the work of Christ to him because maybe he already said yes to God. And if I develop a relationship with him, I'll find that out. But your point, your insight is brilliant. Yes, you wouldn't want to say this to somebody in a cavalier manner. That's okay, believe whatever you want to believe. I know you believe in sincerely. We're right and God will save you anyways. It could come off real smug. Yes, no, don't do that. Yes?
Right. Yeah, well, the gospel's offensive enough, right? Paul calls it the scandal, the stumbling block of the cross. It's offensive to our pride. So what we want to do is minimize all offenses that aren't inherent to the work of the cross, which would be our presentation, our, our way of approaching people. Somebody else, yes? The only one that should be able to condescend is God, yes. I'm just trying to find a way so that when I lay in bed at night, I don't have... Uh, I mean, I'm seeking for the truth. But if I lay in bed under hypotheses one, uh, what happens to me is my brain deconstructs and I have a hard time surrendering and opening myself to God. Why? Because I have to wind up believing what? That all these people and all these people by no fault of their own because of where they were born in time and space, they're all lost and I see that as the heart and core of what Christians have done down through the centuries. This is how our uh, presentation is. So before um, I get thrown off the stage, goodbye, God bless you, and see you next week. possible for someone to come to knowledge, like let's say someone 